0: Father, Your Word is power. Your Gospel is the power of God unto salvation. Father, we pray that Your Word would go forth with power today. Father, would You speak to us through Your Scripture? Would You fill us with faith and hope and love? Father, that we might walk in the footsteps of the Lord Jesus Christ, defeating the tempter, crushing Him under our feet, crushing His head. Father, help us to fight Satan's temptations with your word, even as Jesus himself did. Oh, Father, fill us with your power this day. We pray these things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. As you know, I've been preaching through James, and we've come to verses 13 through 15 in chapter 1, which deal with temptation. But I thought it might be wise for us to take a break from James this morning before looking at what James says about how we should deal with temptation. I thought it might be helpful for us to see how Jesus dealt with temptation. And that's why we have Matthew 4 in front of us this day. If we want to learn to battle temptation, certainly we must learn from the one who always defeated temptation, the Lord Jesus Christ. G.K. Chesterton once said, Fairy tales do not give the child his first idea of the monster. What they give the child is his first clear idea that the monster can be defeated. The child has known the dragon intimately ever since he has had an imagination. What the fairy tale provides for him is a St. George to kill the dragon. I think Chesterton is right. And I think that's what we have in front of us in this story. Now, of course, the story of Christ's temptation is no fairy tale. Uh, Or you could say it is the fairy tale made fact, as C.S. Lewis put it. But what fairy tales point us to, what fairy tales point us to in a mythic way, the gospel gives us in reality, in history, in real life. Which means that Christ's victory over Satan's temptations certainly gives us strategies for dealing with temptation ourselves when we face Satan's lies. Uh, We're in union with Christ, so certainly we can imitate him. We can learn from the things we see here. But more than that, this story shows us Christ has actually defeated Satan on our behalf. And that is the good news. The Gospel is a happy message. A glorious message. A liberating message. A victorious message. Christ has won. Christ has won the victory for us. The monster is destroyed. The dragon is slain. The greater Saint George has come. Christ has won the victory. He is the master of temptation because He has defeated the tempter. Now, consider the setting of this temptation. His temptation takes place right after his baptism. Uh, at his baptism, the Father declares Jesus to be the beloved Son. He says, You are my beloved Son, in whom my soul delights. The Holy Spirit is poured out on Jesus at his baptism. It's this grand Trinitarian event. But that declaration the Father makes, that becomes the premise for all of Satan's temptations. All of temptations Satan's begin, if you are the Son of God. The tempter is going to challenge that identity, or at least call into question the meaning of that identity. Satan is going to seek to exploit and attack the Father's baptismal declaration. This is important because Jesus coming as the Son of God is really what the whole Gospel is about. And actually, in Matthew's Gospel, several unique aspects of Jesus' identity are highlighted for us. The way Matthew tells the story, Jesus has really a threefold identity. He is a new Adam, a new Israel, and a new David. God in the flesh has come to fulfill these roles, the roles of Adam, Israel, and David. Think about Jesus as a new Adam. Adam was the original human son of God. Now, Jesus comes as a new Adam. Adam faced the tempter in the garden, but because he fell, Jesus as the new Adam will face the tempter in the wilderness, much harsher conditions. Jesus is the second Adam, which means humanity's hopes depend on him. There will be no third Adam. If Jesus fails, it's over. Just as Adam was confronted with audible temptations, Satan spoke to Adam, so it will be with Jesus. It's a confrontation over the Word. Will Jesus believe God's Word or Satan's Word? Just as Adam faced a food temptation, so will Jesus, a temptation to turn stones into bread. Jesus is the Son of God, the eternal Son of God. But now that He's come as a man, we can say He is also the Son of Man. He's the Son of Adam. He's a new Adam, a second Adam. He is, as the Apostle Paul says, The last Adam. And that means he carries humanity on his shoulders and in his heart as he goes into the wilderness to meet Satan. So Jesus is a new Adam. What else? Well, he's also a new Israel. Matthew has made this clear from the very beginning of his Gospel. The story of Jesus, as Matthew tells it, has been tracking with the story of Israel all along. And so Israel, ancient Israel, went down into Egypt. Jesus had a flight into Egypt as well. And actually, in Matthew's way of saying things, Israel has become Egypt. But Jesus has this, he goes into Egypt even as Israel did. Pharaoh in ancient Israel sought to slaughter the baby boys, the baby Jewish boys. In the same way, in Matthew's telling, what do we see? Herod seeks to slaughter baby Jesus. He ends up killing a bunch of Israelite baby boys around Bethlehem. Herod's playing the role of Pharaoh, even as Jesus is like those baby boys in ancient Israel. Israel crossed through the Red Sea in a kind of baptismal event. Jesus has his baptism in the Jordan. And then the next thing you see with Israel is they spent 40 years wandering in the wilderness facing temptations of various sorts. Well, in the same way, what happens next with Jesus? He has his 40 days wandering in the wilderness. And like Israel in the wilderness, he faces various tests. Indeed, even like Adam in the garden faced a food test, and Israel in the wilderness faced a food test, Jesus will face a food test. Now, those parallels between Israel and Jesus continue on. It really structures the whole of Matthew's Gospel. We can stop there in chapter 4 for our purposes, but you should know the whole of Matthew's Gospel essentially retells the story of Israel through Jesus. But the point is this, where Israel succumbed, Jesus succeeds. Where Israel fell into sin and was conquered by the tempter, Jesus will succeed. He will overcome sin And And finally, there's another strand here. Jesus is a new David. In Matthew chapter 1, in his genealogy, Jesus has already been identified as the son of David. So we might expect parallels between Jesus and David. And that is indeed exactly what we find. Think about the life of David. David gets anointed as king, and then he goes to face the enemy in the form of Goliath. This great giant who blasphemes God, who speaks lies. This great giant who wears scaly, snake-like armor. That's 1 Samuel 16 and 17. Well, what about Jesus? Jesus, like David, gets anointed. That's what his baptism is, his anointing to kingship. And then he goes to face the enemy as well, the serpent, Satan himself. Now, you know, it's interesting. David did better than Adam and Israel. He was able to defeat the giant and crush his head. But what happened later on? Eventually, David does fall. He falls in multiple ways. He falls hard. Satan still got him. Satan still got the best of him. He still fell to temptation. And so Adam, Israel, and David are all called son of God. But they were sons who sinned. Jesus comes as the son of God He faces Satan as well, but he remains faithful. He walks in their shoes, walks down the same path, but he does so victoriously. He does for us what no one else could, what we could never do for ourselves. He runs Satan's gauntlet, facing all his temptations, and he never gives in or compromises in any way. And that brings us to the temptations themselves. There are three layers to Jesus' identity in this passage. He's a new Adam, a new Israel, a new David. But there are also three temptations here. Satan tests Jesus in three specific ways. It's like a three-round winner-take-all heavyweight fights. Jesus and Satan are going to fight it out. And So you've got the first temptation to turn stones to bread. The devil assumes Jesus has power to do the miraculous, just as God provided manna from heaven in the wilderness for the Israelites, so Jesus can provide bread in the wilderness as well. Satan's right about that. Jesus could have performed this miracle, turning stones to bread. But Jesus refuses to do it. Why? Why does Jesus refuse this temptation? Well, because who would he be feeding if he turned stones to bread? He would only be feeding himself. It would be a completely self serving act. And so he doesn't do it. It's interesting, on other occasions when people were hungry for bread, Jesus miraculously provides it. Not turning stones to bread, but miraculously providing bread in other ways. For example, if you keep reading in Matthew's Gospel in chapters 14 and 15, you find he feeds the hungry multitudes twice the four thousand and then the five thousand. Jesus is all too happy to use his power to fill hungry bellies. But what do you see? He must use his power for others, not merely for himself. He'll provide bread for the needy again and again and again, but he's not going to do this one off act that Satan's bidding to fill his own belly. That's not why Jesus came. That's not his mission. He didn't come to serve himself. Of course, the ultimate provision of bread comes at the Last Supper when Jesus gives himself to his disciples as bread. Bread to be broken. Bread to be torn apart that ultimately the whole world may be fed. He gives himself to us in the form of bread. He gives himself to us as food. His whole mission was not to feed Himself. His whole mission has been to feed others. To feed others Himself so we can live for Him and in union with Him. And that continues today. This very day, we will feast upon Jesus by faith as He gives Himself to us mysteriously, mystically through the working of the Holy Spirit as we share the bread of the Eucharist together. So Satan's first temptation is for the son to live in a self-serving rather than an other-serving way. The temptation is to live a self-serving life rather than a God-serving and a neighbor-serving life. The temptation is to forsake the way of sacrifice. That first temptation is to break the fast on Satan's terms rather than God's terms, which is exactly what Adam and Eve did. God had told Adam and Eve to fast for a time from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. To fast from that tree until that time when God would authorize them to eat it. They jumped the gun. They seized the food for themselves. Jesus won't do it. Jesus wins round one. So it's on to round two. Satan tempts Jesus to do a sort of PR stunt to throw himself off the temple and have his angels catch him. Now, there are a lot of different things happening here. A lot of things you can look at with the temple, actually the wing of the temple where Jesus is. But one of the things this would have done had Jesus pulled off this stunt, it would have been a way of gaining popularity with the people. This would have been a way for people to cheer for Jesus and to adore Jesus if he pulls this off. And he could have pulled it off. There's no question Jesus has legions of angels at His back and call. If He snaps His fingers, a multitude of angels will be there to do His bidding. There's no question He could have done this. But to what end? Jesus did not come to win popularity contests. He didn't come to show off His power in self-glorifying ways. He didn't come to use His power in selfish ways. So He's not going to hurl Himself off the temple Rather, he came to hurl himself into the jaws of death and hell for our sake. And so, yes, in the end, Jesus certainly will win the adoration and praise of multitudes. We're part of the multitudes who gather to adore and praise Jesus this very day. But Jesus is going to win the adoration and win the praise of the multitudes through pain, through suffering through sacrifice, not through cheap stunts, not through self-glorifying stunts. He's going to do so through the cross. And so we come to the climactic round three. Jesus is one of the first two rounds. What will happen here? Satan takes Jesus up to a high place, to a mountaintop. Satan shows Jesus the kingdoms of the world and all their glory, all the treasures and riches and power of the world. And you might wonder, how could Satan do this? How does Satan have the kingdoms of the world to offer in this way? Well, in a sense, you could say Satan, at this point in history at least, is the world's ruler. Why? Well, because of the world's choice. Because the nations of the world had chosen to bow down before him. Because people loved darkness rather than light. And people wanted to remain in the darkness rather than to come into the light and have their sins exposed. And so in a very real sense, Satan was the possessor of the kingdoms of the earth. And so Satan offers Jesus a chance to be his right hand man. To have a seat at Satan's right hand to share in this rule over the kingdoms of the earth. This is certainly something that Jesus wants, ultimately. Indeed, we could say this is why Jesus came to win the nations. You see that when you come to the end of Matthew's Gospel and he sends his disciples out to disciple the nations and baptize them in his name. So this is a good thing for Jesus to have the nations. So why not give in to this temptation? All he has to do is bow down to Satan. Think about what Satan is implying here. Think about what's happening Maybe something like this. Satan is saying, in effect, Jesus, I know what it's going to cost you to dethrone me. You know what it's going to cost you to dethrone me. You're going to have to suffer hell itself. You're going to have to suffer abandonment and death. It's going to cost you your life. Jesus, let's be reasonable about this. Let me propose another way. Another way to get the same result. Jesus, all you have to do is bow down to me. And then you and me, we can rule the nations together. You can share in my rule. The Father promised you the kingdoms, but you know how hard it's going to be to get them that way. I'm giving you a much easier way. Satan is tempting Jesus to compromise. To compromise the cross. To seek glory without sacrifice. To seek rule without the cross. To take a detour around the cross rather than going through it. That is always the essence of Satan's temptations. Really, all three of the temptations work this way. But Jesus refuses. He will have the kingdoms of this world. He will claim them, and He will convert them, and He will make them His own. But He will do so by suffering and dying for those kingdoms of the world. So it will be through the cross That the kingdoms of this world will be transformed into the kingdom of God. That's even the picture we have in Revelation. The kingdoms of this earth have become the kingdoms of our God. And so Jesus will not bow down to Satan. He's not going to bow before the tempter. Instead, He's going to destroy the tempter. He's not going to receive the kingdoms from Satan. He's going to take them by the force of grace. He will take the kingdoms from Satan by the force of His grace, by the power of His love. Jesus won't receive the kingdoms as a gift from Satan, but He will receive them as a gift from His Father in the Father's appointed way. And so it will be Jesus rather than Satan who claims the nations as His own. The people will bow down before Jesus rather than Satan in worship. That's where history is headed. And so Jesus wins round three. And here Satan is is defeated. And so Satan has to depart. He's got to go regroup as it were. And he's certainly going to seek out a rematch. Satan's going to come back and tempt Jesus several more times before it's all over. And again, all these temptations take the same shape of cross avoidance. Satan will come back in Matthew chapter 16 and speak through Peter right after Jesus prophesies the cross, that he's going to the cross. Peter says, may it never be. Peter rebukes him for thinking this way about the cross. And Jesus says back to Peter, get behind me, Satan. In other words, you become Satan's mouthpiece by trying to get me to go a different way that doesn't involve the cross. Get behind me, Satan. When Jesus is actually hanging on the cross, People are standing around, uh, jeering at Jesus, mocking Jesus, and again they present Him with this same satanic temptation. The voice of the people becomes the voice of Satan. In Matthew 27, they say to Jesus, as He's nailed to the tree, if you are the Son of God, sounds a lot like Satan in Matthew 4, doesn't it? If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. They mock Him. He saved others, but He can't save Himself. It is the same temptation Satan always brings. The temptation to seize glory without the cross. But what do we see? Every time Jesus is faced with this temptation, this satanic temptation, he defeats him. He defeats him again and again and again until finally Satan is crushed to pieces when Jesus dies on the cross. That's what Jesus has done for us. And of course, our calling is to resist Satan uh, and to resist Satan's way of life, the satanic way of life as well. To resist the satanic pull to a life of self-centeredness. Oh yes, Satan's temptations always look good and glorious. It looks like Satan's way is the way of happiness, the way of joy. It looks like Satan's way is life-affirming. But what Jesus shows us is, yes, there is this way that looks good to a man, but in reality, it's a way that leads to death. Every temptation of Satan, whatever form it takes, whatever the specific details, every temptation of Satan comes down to this one thing, to live for self rather than God. To love self above everything and everyone else. To put yourself first to do your own will rather than God's will. To seize glory instead of waiting for God to give it. Every temptation boils down to that simple reality. And that's really the point here. The cross. That's what all three of these temptations in Matthew 4, taken together, are really all about. Satan tempting Jesus to go a different path. A path that will avoid sacrifice and suffering. Satan is continually tempting Jesus to avoid the cross. And he tempts us in the same way as well. Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me. If you want to be my disciple, you've got to die to self. You've got to deny yourself. And what does Satan do? His temptations for us are to avoid the cross. Satan's schemes. It's interesting. Paul says in 2 Corinthians, he says, I don't want you to be unaware of Satan's schemes, Satan's devices, Satan's tricks. What is Satan always doing? What does he always have up his sleeve? He's always trying to get us to avoid the way of the cross. It's what ties all of Satan's temptations in your life together. Satan says, hey, you're a son of God. You shouldn't have to suffer. Or, hey, you know what? You're so great. You shouldn't have to wait for this or that. You deserve better. You shouldn't have to go hungry or go without. You shouldn't have to wait for glory. You should have it all now. That's the voice of Satan. It's why people have sex before marriage. It's why people run up really huge consumer debt. Uh, It's why people lie and cheat and steal. It's why people think they are entitled to things. It's why they focus completely on their own safety and comfort and status and popularity and prestige. It's the way of Satan. The way of Satan is the way of selfishness and self-centeredness and self-absorption. We want what we want, and we want it now. The heart wants what it wants, and it wants it now. And you know, the thing is, in in many cases, what we want is good. What we want might be something that God has even promised to us. There's nothing wrong with bread, after all. Bread's good. So Jesus is being tempted with something good to go after something good in the wrong way. The the kingdoms of the world had been promised to Jesus. So what's wrong with that? Well, that's good in itself, but there's a satanic way to get that and a godly way to get that. Satan often tempts us with things that are good, even things God has promised to us, but we should only seek those things in God's way and in God's timing. That's the key. We've also got to notice this. Every one of these temptations in Matthew 4 is a twisting of the truth in some way. It's one of the things that makes this such a weighty passage uh, for preachers to consider in Matthew chapter 4. Satan, like many of his servants, is a preacher. Satan preaches the Word of God. And I can tell you, for any preacher, there's always that temptation to twist the Word of God, to make it a little more palatable to the people. Satan knows the Bible, and he quotes it back to Jesus, but look at how he uses the Scripture. Really, all three of these temptations in one way or another flows out of the Bible. It's clear in the second temptation where Satan actually quotes right out of Psalm 91. The other temptations also allude to biblical themes, but here it's really explicit. But notice this. When Satan quotes Psalm 91... He cites verses 11 and 12, which say that He will give His angels charge over you. This is speaking to the servant of the Lord. God will give His angels charge over you, and they shall bear you up lest you dash your foot on a rock. Now what's interesting is that if you keep reading in Psalm 91, it goes on to say this. You, again, speaking to the servant of the Lord, the Lord's anointed, you shall tread upon the cobra and the young lion and the snake you shall trample underfoot. Isn't it interesting that Satan leaves that part out? The part that describes Messiah's victory over him. The serpent and the lion, after all, are frequent symbols in Scripture for Satan. And we find here that the Messiah will crush them. He will defeat them. But Satan quotes the Bible selectively. He picks and chooses. It's a satanic way of using the Bible. Satan will cite Scripture, but he's a Scripture twister. But note then how Jesus fights back. If Satan uses Scripture, what is Jesus going to use? Well, every time Jesus fights back against Satan, in every single one of the temptations, he quotes Scripture against Satan. He answers Satan with Scripture. In fact, it's interesting, he quotes each time from Moses' sermon uh, in the wilderness, the book of Deuteronomy. Jesus uses the word God. Now, if Jesus used the Word of God to face temptation, how much more do you and I need to use the Word of God in facing temptation? Jesus is the Word of God incarnate. And yet when faced with Satan's temptations, what does he do? He turns to the sword of the Spirit. Hebrews 4 describes Scripture as a two-edged sword. Jesus reaches for this sword to do battle with Satan. 2 Corinthians 10 talks about God's Word. Tearing down satanic strongholds so we can take every thought captive and make it obedient. It's the Word of God that does that. See, temptation has a pull on us because it promises us something we want. It appeals to our desires, as James 1 says. James says temptation appeals to our desires desires. Temptation presents us with the bait, but it hides the hook. Temptation is tempting precisely because we think, this is the way to joy. This is what will make me happy. Satan makes his promises. Satan's constantly advertising. He's constantly running commercials in your head and all around you for this, that, and the other to live life his way. Satan makes promises. So how do we fight back? Satan's got his promises. You fight back against Satan's promises with God's promises. The only way to argue with the devil is by using Scripture. It's the only way you can argue against Satan. only safe way to argue with Satan is by using Scripture. The whole issue of sinning and obeying comes down to this. This is how simple it is. Whose promises will you believe? God's? Or the tempters? Where is your faith? Where do you seek joy? Go back to the original temptation. Adam and Eve in the garden. This is how it was for them. Whose word would they believe? Whose promises would they believe? God's or Satan's? That's what it comes down to. We're to live by faith in the Word of God. Clinging to that Word at all times. That's our only hope. That's what Jesus shows us here. So what do we take away from this story? Well, first this. Satan can be, and indeed has been, defeated. This is the good news. This is why we're here today. This is what brings us joy and hope and life and salvation. Satan has been defeated. All the fairy tales have come true through the cross. The dragon is slain. The damsel in distress is rescued. The curse is broken. The kingdom is reclaimed. The never-ending winter has ended. This is the good news. The fairy tales have become fact through the death and resurrection of Jesus. But you might say, well, Satan can be defeated. He has been defeated in this way. Why do I keep falling for his temptations again and again and again? I mean, when Satan tempts me to live for myself, and he does that every day, I often fall. Well, yeah, that's true. I mean, all you have to do is look at your own life, and you can see that often you do believe Satan's promises instead of God's. You know something's wrong, and you do it anyway because it looks so attractive. It's so appealing. So then what is your hope? Well, your hope better not be in yourself. It better not be in yourself. Jesus conquered temptation. And that is your hope. Your hope is outside of yourself. Your hope is in Jesus. And because of what Jesus has done, all your failings are covered. All those times you give into to temptation, they're covered. Jesus died for those. Jesus defeated Satan on your behalf. He won that victory for you. So those times when you don't win the victory, you know Jesus has still got you covered. There's good news in that. But you don't stop there. There's more. It's not only that. At the same time, we really can have victory over Satan's temptations in our lives. You don't have to live in constant defeat. You don't have to give in. You can have victory. You can have victory over Satan in your life. Victory over temptation is yours. Because you are united to Jesus. And because of Jesus, you can win every battle with Satan you have. You really can. You have to believe that. That Whatever it is, whatever the sin struggle is, no matter how deep, no matter how many years or decades it's been there in your life, you can have victory. The grace of God can really set you free. The love of Jesus can really set you free. You're not stuck. That's the good news of the Gospel. There really is a way forward. There really is a pathway to victory. You're a son of God. You've been baptized. The Father has declared His love for you. He's given you His Spirit. You have God's promises. We've seen in James 1, James says, Don't doubt. Don't doubt God's Word. We've seen that already. We'll go on to see later in James 1, He says, Do God's Word. So don't doubt God's word. Don't doubt God's promises. Believe them. And then don't be merely a hearer of God's word, but go do God's word. That's what James goes on to say. Put the word into practice. Instead of doubting, do. That's James' strategy for dealing with temptation. Don't doubt the promises of God. Believe them. And that faith that you have in God's promises will drive you towards obedience. And, of course, this means that we're going to stop living for ourselves. We won't live for our own glory. We will live for God's glory. This is how we fight manfully under the banner of the cross against the world, the flesh, and the devil. You fight with the weapon of God's word. You fight back against Satan's fake promises with God's true promises, the real promises of Scripture. All that matters is knowing that Jesus is one. And that if you trust in Him, because you trust in Him, you're caught up into His victory. You share in His victory. Jesus is the winner. Jesus is the champion. It doesn't look like that in our world. Nobody is announcing that outside of the church. And even in the church, sometimes we garble the message. You know, we Christians are constantly told we're on the wrong side of history. But people have been saying that about Jesus and his followers since 33 AD. The world always expects the church to fail. The world always expects Jesus to lose. The Roman Empire was supposed to stamp out the followers of Jesus. That was supposed to be the end of it. The French Revolution was supposed to usher in a new era in which Christ would be completely forgotten. A new calendar, a new structure to the week, everything. The All of history would be scrubbed of any remembrance of the Christian faith. Scientific materialism was supposed to squash the church and the Christian worldview once and for all. I mean, there are some who even thought the age of Aquarius was going to bring in a new era of peace when we wouldn't need Jesus or the church in any way. But Jesus and his gospel and the church persist. Jesus simply doesn't go away, his gospel keeps on saving sinners. His kingdom keeps marching on. Believe it or not, if you see past the headlines to what's really happening, Satan keeps losing market share, so to speak. The gospel keeps winning. The church keeps growing. Yes, the world looks dark. But the light of Christ keeps shining, pushing the darkness back. Jesus The crucified one keeps ruling. His kingdom keeps advancing. His love keeps conquering. His grace keeps taking shame and guilt away. His new life, his resurrection life, keeps transforming and renewing sinners. This is good news. This is overwhelmingly good news. The gospel is a happy message. It's happy because it brings us forgiveness. It's happy because it brings us under the rule of the most benevolent king imaginable, the king we've all longed for. Don't doubt or deny or disobey God's Word. Remember the Word of God. Take it with you into battle. Remember your baptism. Your God's beloved Son. Remember what God has promised you. Remember, you're united to Christ. He's your champion. He is the master of temptation. And in Him, you can be victorious as well. But also remember as well, to enter into His glory, you're going to have to take up your cross and follow Him. That's how you defeat Satan. It's always walking in the way of the cross. When Satan comes to you with some kind of temptation, it's going to make you happy. It looks good. It looks glorious. You tell Satan, no thank you. I'm walking with Jesus in the way of the cross. Let's pray together. Father, we do ask that you would help us to live for your glory and not for our own. Father, we know your way is best, but Satan makes his way look so good. Father, I pray that you would help us to take up our crosses and follow Jesus to take up Your Word and use it as a sword to defeat Satan, to defeat the tempter's lies. Father, I pray that You would help us to remember our identity, who we are, who You've made us to be, who You've declared us to be, what You have declared over us and about us in our baptisms and again and again and again. After that, even today, declaring Your love and forgiveness over us. Father, I pray that we might do these things that through us Your kingdom would be manifest that the victory Jesus has already won might become more and more manifest, that his kingdom might advance, that he might inherit the nations as you have promised them to him. We thank you that Jesus was faithful, that he defeated Satan, that he walked in the way of the cross, and we pray that you would help us to walk in the same path as well. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.